0: Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Psychiatric patients have been reported to have lower vitamin D levels than the general population. Low vitamin D levels are also associated with cardiometabolic risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, and obesity, which in turn are common in psychiatric patients. A study was conducted among inpatients of a Virginia hospital to look at the relationships between vitamin D status, cardiometabolic risk factors, and psychiatric illness to see if vitamin D supplementation would be a benefit. Serum 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels, metabolic variables, and brief psychiatric rating scale scores were measured in 290 patients, and the researchers determined their correlation with vitamin D levels at baseline and after vitamin D treatment for up to 12 months. Low vitamin D levels were common in these patients. Nearly half had levels that put them at risk for poor bone health. Vitamin D treatment was easy and inexpensive, but the required doses varied among patients. This finding suggests two things. That patients might benefit from screening for low vitamin D levels, but also that if they do receive vitamin D treatment, their levels will need to be measured periodically to make sure they stay in an appropriate range. Cardiometabolic risk factors were highly prevalent, but they correlated poorly with vitamin D levels. The authors concluded that increasing vitamin D levels was not associated with improvement in risk factors or psychiatric symptoms. The next article assesses the utility of an electronic clinical decision support tool for management of depression in primary care. The nine-item Patient Health Questionnaire, or PHQ-9, is used to measure the severity of depression symptoms. This questionnaire and other clinical decision support tools can help primary care physicians diagnose and monitor depression, but using these measures in a busy primary care practice is sometimes cumbersome. One way to make these tools easier to use is to embed them into an electronic health record. Gill and colleagues examined physician use of electronic health record-based depression tools by 119 primary care clinicians in 19 practices across the country. The tools included a PHQ-9 that automatically popped up for patients with a diagnosis of depression. Previous scores were compared to help measure improvement and to guide treatment decisions. Also embedded in the electronic health record were a suicide assessment tool and patient and provider education materials. Over the one-year study period, the PHQ-9 was used for nearly three-quarters of patients with newly diagnosed depression and nearly half of patients with ongoing depression. The suicide assessment tool was used for 62% of appropriate patients. The large majority of providers rated these tools as very helpful for managing depression and assisting in treatment decisions. However, the educational materials were not commonly used and were not rated highly. Overall, this study found that electronic health records can facilitate use of clinical decision support tools for depression, leading to improvements in diagnosis and monitoring of depression in primary care. Next, we focus on the risk of developing type 2 diabetes mellitus with the use of antipsychotics and antidepressants in children and adolescents. The authors of this study remind us that type 2 diabetes mellitus in children and adolescents has become an important public health concern in parallel with the epidemic of overweight and obesity in this age group and a sharp increase in children being prescribed antidepressant or antipsychotic medications. They conducted a retrospective cohort study evaluating Medicaid medical and pharmacy claims between 1996 and 2006 to identify 4,070 children and adolescents diagnosed initially with type 2 diabetes, 39% of whom were later reclassified as having type 1 diabetes. The prevalence of depression, psychosis, and being prescribed antidepressant or antipsychotic medications was low. The use of antidepressants or antipsychotics alone, or in combination, was more likely to be associated with having diagnosed type 2 diabetes and its cardiometabolic comorbidities – obesity, hypertension, and dyslipidemia – by adolescence. However, the use of these psychotropic medications did not appear to contribute to the early onset of type 2 diabetes in this age group or to the initial overlapping clinical picture between type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus in primary care settings. Since these dysmetabolic conditions are highly associated with the onset and worsening of depressive or sickness symptoms over time and vice versa, the primary care physician must diligently and consistently monitor changes in all conditions such as glucose control, weight, blood pressure, lipid levels, activity level, and mood symptoms to effectively treat and manage the care of these individuals. We move now to the topic of reversible lithium neurotoxicity. The authors point out that lithium neurotoxicity may be reversible or irreversible. Reversible lithium neurotoxicity has been defined as a case in which a patient recovers without any permanent neurologic sequela even after two months of an episode. Cases of reversible lithium neurotoxicity differ in clinical presentation from those of irreversible lithium neurotoxicity and have important implications in clinical practice. A search of the literature was conducted. And the age, sex, clinical features, diagnostic categories, lithium doses, serum-lithium levels, precipitating factors, and preventative measures of 52 cases of reversible lithium neurotoxicity were extracted. Among the 52 cases of reversible lithium neurotoxicity, patients ranged in age from 10 to 80 years, and a greater number were female. Most patients had affective disorders, schizoaffective disorders, and or depression, and presented mainly with acute organic brain syndrome. In most cases, the therapeutic serum lithium levels were less than 1.5 milliequivalents per liter, and dosage regimens were less than 2,000 milligrams per day. Specific drug combinations with lithium... Underlying brain pathology, abnormal tissue levels, specific diagnostic categories, and elderly populations were some of the precipitating factors reported for reversible lithium neurotoxicity. Preventative measures were also described. Reversible lithium neurotoxicity presents with a certain clinical profile, and precipitating factors, for which there are appropriate preventative measures. Recognition will help in early diagnosis and prompt treatment. Next, the publication of the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 2013 provides an occasion to consider an alternative more personalized approach to understanding and treating patients with psychiatric conditions. One such approach, based on the book Perspectives of Psychiatry, written by Drs. Paul McHugh and Philip Slavney from Johns Hopkins University, advocates the examination of each psychiatric patient from four perspectives. The disease perspective, the dimensional perspective, the behavioral perspective, and the life story perspective. For each case, all four perspectives must be synthesized and integrated to develop a comprehensive, synthesized formulation and coherent treatment plan. From the disease perspective, the etiology of a patient's presenting syndrome is understood as arising from structural or functional pathology within the brain. The basis of the dimensional perspective is that an individual's endowments may increase his or her potential to react to a certain provocation, with a particular set of pathological responses. The behavior perspective is based on the concept that an individual's psychological drives influence the choice of whether or not to engage in a particular behavior. Lastly, the life story perspective seeks to understand an individual seeking treatment based on what he or she has encountered in life. A recent literature review showed dispersion of the perspective approach to institutions around the world. However, the approach is not always used correctly, with some of the literature only addressing one of the perspectives and not all of them. This finding makes an understanding of the perspectives and why it is important to utilize all four perspectives even more important. When fully applied, the perspectives approach has the potential to generate a more integrative and coherent formulation and treatment plan for patients. In the next study, Thomas and colleagues review the evidence base for the efficacy and tolerability of antipsychotic medication for the treatment of the first episode of schizophrenia. The authors searched Medline databases for published articles in English over the last 25 years on choice of antipsychotic treatment for the first episode of schizophrenia with an emphasis on efficacy and tolerability of antipsychotic drugs in the acute phase of psychotic illness. They found that presently there is no convincing evidence to guide clinicians in choosing a single first-line antipsychotic that is effective in treating positive and negative symptoms of the first episode of schizophrenia. Even though second-generation antipsychotic drugs offer potential benefits in terms of less extrapyramidal side effects and some benefits treating negative, affective, and cognitive symptoms, these drugs are not without their own side effects. The authors conclude that with the introduction of a number of second-generation antipsychotic drugs, there have been significant advances in antipsychotic drug treatment over the last decade. However, despite these advances, there are still a number of limitations in continued use of some antipsychotic medications due to their efficacy and tolerability issues in the acute and early maintenance phases of psychosis. Active research in this area would provide more promising results of improved efficacy and tolerability of antipsychotic medication. Moving on. The terms somatoform disorder and functional disorder have been criticized for hindering rather than facilitating clinical communication, and physicians may rarely use these terms when communicating with patients who might be eligible for these diagnoses. However, no study has yet examined the extent to which patients at risk for these disorders are familiar with the diagnostic terms. Therefore, the primary aim of the next study was to examine whether people at risk for somatoform disorder or those with medically unexplained somatic symptoms are more familiar with the two terms than others. 2,470 participants in a representative German population sample were asked whether they were familiar with the terms somatoform disorder and functional disorder. Sociodemographic variables, unexplained physical ailments, doctor visits, depression and anxiety were also assessed. Of the sample, 19.5% reported being familiar with the term somatoform disorder, and 54% reported being familiar with the term functional disorder. Participants with medically unexplained symptoms did not have a higher probability of knowing the terms compared to all others in the sample participants with a potential somatoform disorder did not differ in their familiarity ratings from the others. The authors of this study conclude that these diagnostic terms are probably not commonly used by physicians in routine clinical communication with patients suffering from unexplained medical symptoms. Future empirical research should investigate whether the currently proposed diagnosis, complex somatic symptom disorder, can solve current problems of acceptability, communication, and adequate treatment. In the next article, the case is presented of a 46-year-old woman with long-standing episodic severe depression who discontinued venlafaxine over a four-week taper after taking the antidepressant for eight years. The patient experienced severe discontinuation syndrome. Panic and relapse of depression occurred two months after achieving discontinuation, and the development of tinnitus took place concurrently to the discontinuation. The author found cases in the literature in which tinnitus was experienced when the antidepressant was started and ceased when the antidepressant was stopped. However, the patient presented here experienced tinnitus as a discontinuation symptom and it persisted even after the antidepressant was reintroduced. It is suggested that a long taper of 6 to 24 months may be necessary in order to discontinue an antidepressant successfully. Next. Have you ever had to evaluate and manage a patient who has inserted a foreign object into one or more of their bodily orifices? Have you wondered why he or she did it, and have been surprised by your reaction to their behavior? If you have, then the latest case vignette in our popular series, Rounds in the General Hospital, from Dr. Theodore Stern and colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital, should serve to elucidate some of the issues faced by physicians who care for these patients. Now we invite you to engage in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorder Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of an 88-year-old woman with insidious onset and gradual progression of short-term memory difficulties with mild anomia that gradually worsened over time. She was having difficulty with orientation to date, tracking appointments, and recalling details of recent events and conversations. She also had developed delusions and visual hallucinations. Does the patient meet criteria for dementia? Does she have Alzheimer's disease or an underlying psychiatric disorder? What should her treatment plan entail? Answer these and other questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded to this exciting offering. Finally, the concept of life stage has been useful for treating a variety of people at different times of their lives. And when serious illness brings restrictions, a new life stage can be said to follow. In a manner similar to those individuals who are admitted to hospice, some patients who learn to call the nursing home unit their home outlive their commitment. When they leave the place that they expected their life to end, a new life stage can also be said to begin. In this case presentation from this issue's Psychotherapy Casebook, read how a psychotherapeutic intervention helped a 70-year-old man who was admitted to a nursing home unit at the end of life and anticipating death enter a brand new life stage and return home to his family. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings from our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including a variety of letters, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.